Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. Six o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you through to 10 o'clock. I've just been listening intently to that little piece of music because Ben Francis is producing and Ben's got into this habit, it's a good habit, of putting a theme to the music that he plays on each show. Last night we had songs with harmonicas in them. Ben. Hello. I've heard a wee listen. You've asked me to guess. Can I say songs with women's names? You're on the right track, but it's not specifically women's names. Just names? Uh, people's names, correct. People's names, okay. All right, so if there's music with people's names in them, or names, text us, favourite songs, double eight double three, and we'll try and play them for you throughout the evening. Have you, have you got any others that just sort of off the top of your head, Ben, that give people uh, some examples? Uh, I'd probably say, like, you know, like you got a Romeo Juliet, Die Straits. Yep. Um, oh, I've got I've, I've me, Hey Joe, of yep. course. Uh, Johnny Be Good, Jolene, Dolly Parton. You know, so just thing, things like that. If, if it's got like a, a name which you could probably call somebody, is what we're sort of going for. Or like we've got like Billie Jean, Michael Jackson, you know, things like that. So anything along, along those lines, names. Fire them through. Okay, now the New Zealand Surfing Championships are underway at Piha um, on Auckland's west coast. And I've got to say, living just north of Piha at Murawai, and the beach is all sort of interlink, all black sands, I can say it's actually outstanding surf conditions because we've had a lot of offshore winds. So we're going to get Ben Kennings, Mr Surfing himself, on the programme around about 6.30 to give us a bit of an update on the New Zealand Surfing Championships, Billy Stearman looking to try and win his ninth New Zealand Surfing title. Uh, people like... Al- uh, sorry, just had a... just had a, a, My headphones just dropped out on me there. Uh, people like Ella Williams on the women's side, all competing at this year's National Surfing Championships. Uh, very shortly too, Andrew Ellis, not the all-black Andy Ellis, but Andrew Ellis, former... Black Cap will join us on the program. New Zealand losing that one-day international against Pakistan. They'd lost four consecutively coming into this game. It's now five consecutive losses. Just running through the scorecard, we seem to build partnerships okay. We just couldn't seem to score runs quickly. Usama Mia, 10 overs, 2 for 42. Mohamed Nawaz, 10 overs, 1 for 38. It's not so much about the wickets, it's about... Just been strangled. Mohammed Wazim, eight overs, one for 43. And then Nazim Shah, who they clearly tried to go after, 10 overs, 
gave away 57 runs but took five wickets in the process. I'd be interested to get a little bit of talk on this off the back of the interview because I just want to know how relevant this is. I sort of just scratched my head. I knew this game was on last night, but I didn't bother to go home to watch it live. I sort of watched a highlights package of it. In fact, I had no desire whatsoever to go and watch this live because I'm like, what does this game carry? What's its relevance? Is there any jeopardy here? It almost just feels like it's a bit of an exhibition these days, one day cricket, when it's not one of the major tournaments. And I'm just trying to work out what the game does to try and recapture our imagination like we had in the 1980s, like we had in the 1990s. Does anybody care we lost to Pakistan in the One Day International? Is anybody concerned that we've lost five in a row? 0800-150-811 is the number. If you want to text your thoughts, 28833. Um, Alan Reeves. A lot of people might won't know the name necessarily, but they might know the voice. Alan is retiring after 23 years as an event MC and commentator. He goes around the country at a lot of local running events, triathlons, swimming, uh, a lot of secondary school type events, particularly sort of in the northern area, particularly of New Zealand. Does a great job with his music, encouraging people, welcoming athletes home across the finish line, interviewing athletes, simply sometimes just reading out announcements. But you've got to have your MCs, you've got to have your on-field commentators to enhance an event. So we're going to catch up with Alan around about 7 o'clock, look back on his 23 years in the event industry here in New Zealand as an MC, as an event commentator. What have been the highlights, what have been the lowlights, what's he seen in terms of the shift with events, how much harder is it now to run an event with local body and central government legislating so much and so much emphasis these days placed on risk management, etc. We'll talk some basketball. We will talk some tennis. And of course, we want to hear from you on 0800 150 We'll take a break. When we come back, we will talk to Andrew Ellis. We'll get his thoughts on the Black Caps and that performance against Pakistan. Second one-day international Tomorrow night we'll have live coverage here on SENZ from around about 9.30. Little duty about Jack and Diane 11 minutes after 6, Names and Songs is the theme tonight. A little bit of Jack and Diane. Text your songs through on 8833. We had ball-by-ball coverage last night from 10.30 here on SENZ of the first one-day international between New Zealand and Pakistan. We'll also have coverage tomorrow night for the second one-day international. Not such a good result for New Zealand. They ended up posting 255 for 9 at the end of 50 overs, only for Pakistan to roll them comfortably. After 48.1 overs, Pakistan 258 for four. To talk about this, a man who played 15 one-day internationals for New Zealand, Andrew Ellis, he joins us on the programme. Andy, good afternoon. Welcome. How are you? 
G'day, Mark. I'm good, mate. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. You behave yourself over the New Year? Yes, no, as always. No, busy running around after the uh, the kids, so that um, always keeps me out of trouble. I want to ask you this. I've always been curious. When you sit down as a one-day international outfit, what is I, – I, I mean, clearly you want your openers to go out there and score as many runs as possible, but – What's the role of the openers in terms of setting the game up? What's then the role of, say, three, four and five in terms of then trying to, I guess, take the game away from the opposition? I mean, what's the perfect template? Yeah, I I think generally teams sort of work around that 30-35 overmark. Um, And, you know, as the game evolves, obviously the run rate, you know, the standard run rate is starting to creep up a bit, but... The wickets in hand component in One Day Internationals probably can't be understated. Um, and that's been the, the, the way for many years now, where if you've got wickets in hand going into those um, those last 15 to 20, then teams, particularly with their knowledge of T20 cricket, can then start lining up. Um, well, they know what to do. 15 or 20 overs out, um, they know how to, how to put the hammer down. So, so you've probably got a, um, a, a foot in both camps in terms of, um, making sure you've got wickets in hand, but ensuring that the run rate is up to a, a, a mandatory standard for the modern game. Yeah, you talk about the modern game now, but with the advent and popularity of T20 cricket, has that again seen evolution in the way, say, one-day cricket is now played versus, say, the one-day cricket that I watched, say, in the 80s and 90s and even the first part of mm. the 2000s? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that those those run rates, uh, the, the driving force, you know, and and every player has been challenged with how they how they get to that run rate. Um, everyone's got different skill sets. Um, you know, how do you how do you turn the strike over? Because there's so many ways to skin a cat these days. Um, you know, which I like about the one day game. It actually does provide um, a, a more bigger range of players the ability to to do really well. You know, those that can can get that strike rate through hitting pockets and running and those that can generate the strike rate through boundaries. So, um, I mean, I've always been a big fan of the one-day game. Um, you know, there's so much talk of it dying um, and being the first one to go in terms of the three formats that we have. But um, in terms of playing the game, you know, there's ability for you to come back. And, you know, you can still you can really see people's characters in the one-day game, which, has, which, again, hasn't probably changed. That part hasn't changed over the years, despite the, the changing numbers. Mm. So, so I, I look through this inning and one for one, which is not uncommon, uh, 37 yep. for two and then 69 for three. So re- losing wickets regularly and then a nice little partnership and Daryl Mitchell was the next man out at 125 for four. We got yep. through to 31.3 overs um, and suddenly we were sort of 147 for five. We got tied up by their spinners, particularly Usama Mir and Mohammed Nawaz. Um, we, we, we don't seem to be able to play spin that well. We've never been able to play spin particularly well. Is there an easy way of addressing this? Is this just something that goes with the subcontinent or is this just... Yeah, I mean, it is. It's the age-old question, isn't it, for, for Kiwis? Um, yeah, we've got some fantastic players of spin now. Um, and, you know, Conway, Latham, Williamson, Mitchell, um, you know, these are guys, but most of them are in that top half of the order. Um, 
it's natural. It is a systemic thing when it comes to spin bowling. I mean, it's it's a question, you know, we're still answering from our own bowling point of view. Um, and again, that's probably for the bosses at New Zealand Cricket to address, you know, how do we foster um, that area of the game so that we can always be a complete unit and, and tour really well. I mean, our record at home speaks for itself. Um, but that's the same for every team as well. So how do we do that? I mean, that's, that's a real a challenge, but I don't think it's an insurmountable mm. one. I think there are uh, levers that we can pull around pitches, um, around uh, captaincy. I think it's important. I think when you need a very good captain for spinners to flourish. And if you've got spinners bowling a lot of overs then, um, and the wicket's being challenging, then you're going to get batters. Um, you know, coming up with the skills, it's just natural um, natural selection, really, that the, the batters will have different problems to face. Mm. So, um, but can we create those pitches that are reminiscent of the um, mm. of the subcontinent? I, I've played on quite a few in New Zealand, so I think our climate is a uh, you know often we lean mm. on that, and I think that can be a bit inaccurate at times because I've mm. I've played in a lot of uh, spinning wickets over the years around the country, particularly as the summer goes on and the, and the groundsmen start to get a little bit uh, you know. <laughs> A little bit less water on the on the weekend. Yeah, because I mean, we actually played spin pretty well in the two tests. I mean, you know, we scored a lot mm. of runs in those two tests. It seems to be the ability to play spin under pressure to keep the run rate going. So I'll ask you this question for someone who's, yeah. you know, played at the highest level. Is it easy to play more positively against fast bowling than it is to play more positively against spinners? Um, again, I mean, you, you get on a low, slow wicket and the fast bowlers can become difficult as well. Um, I think since we've had more A cricket to the subcontinent, we're starting to see some of these players coming through with better skills. Um, but I, I do think, you know, when a good spinner is bowling quick and into the wicket, um, it is very hard to get get after them. Um, but again, it comes to, you know, how do you get that strike rate up? It doesn't necessarily need to be in boundaries. How do you keep that, that run rate ticking over through good running, hitting pockets? Um, those types of things, things like people like Henry Nichols do very well, you know, mm. and Tom, Tommy Latham does very well alongside Kane. So, so there are ways of doing it. It's just a case of do you have those tools in the toolbox when the going gets tough or do you only have one gear? And that's probably the challenge for a young player coming mm. through. Mm. In the batting lineup, you go through at Mitchell Santner, 21, Henry Shipley on debut. I thought he bowled actually pretty well. Um, ended up going for a duck. Uh, Salvi not out 15, Lockie Ferguson for one. Can you afford to not have a tail that wags these days? Have you got to be batting through at least number 10 to be an effective one-day outfit? Well, yeah, probably. But, I mean, if you're relying on 8, 9, 10 to do your work, then I'd say you're not winning a great deal of your games. It is the icing on the cake, and they might get you out of jail, you know, one and fifteen. But um, if you if the bulk that top seven are not scoring the, the vast majority of the runs, then you, you're generally not going to be putting it up. So I wouldn't be holding to have someone like Henry Shipley coming in at number nine. Um, you know, that's a hell of a talent to, to come in down there. Um, you know, I would have liked to see him probably bat a little bit higher in his natural position, but um, Mitchell Stanton was, I guess, ahead of him there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, again, like, I, I, I wouldn't be in the team talk putting the blame on those guys, you know, they'd be probably looking at the uh, the other, the you know, the, the ones who are paid to, to get the runs. Mm, okay. Only a, a short turnaround, 24 hours, and they're back into it 
tomorrow night we'll have live coverage here on SENZ. So can there be anything done other than a little bit of reflection, a little bit of visualisation in, say, the 36 or 48 hours between games? No, no, nothing to be done, Mark. You just put it, put it behind you and um, take all the reflections and the, the learning that you need to take to, uh, you know, to, to solve the same problems, but they're not technical things, uh, they're game plan things, decision-making um, things. Um, so that's all where all the reflection would be, and that, that'll be where the focus is going on um, for the next game. You know, how do I, given um, if I... If, or one of them did make a decision that they would have made differently, then they'll reflect on that and then faced with the same situation. Hopefully, if they have that gone through that reflection process, then they'll be better for it in the next game. Okay, I just want to ask you this question because it's been one sort of debate and one that we're going to try and get a bit of discussion around. We've got England coming here for two tests. We saw three spinners being played in the recent test series in Pakistan, which is a little bit of a one-off. Um, yeah. When you look at those three spinners, who do you take in if you're only going to play one to take on England? Yeah, good question. Um, do, do, do you play Michael? Todd Astle, you, am I allowed to take him? You can take Todd Astle. You can take um, <laughs> you, you can take Michael Bracewell. You can take yeah, Ish Sodi. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, Ish is, Ish is coming off um, some wickets, so there's some confidence there. He's our he's our most attacking spinner. Um, I don't think. Oh, <laughs> I don't think we can be too defensive against this England team because they're just going to come after whatever we try. Really, and yep. if, yeah, and if we don't have some sort of wicket-taking ability within that spin bowling, then you know they'll just just walk all over us. I think I think we've got to fight fire with a bit of fire there. Um, so I'd like to see Ish, um, but again, we might revert back to our our seamers being the go-to and the spinner being you know the the guy to give the seamers a rest. So if we revert back to that, then that might be a different conversation for Steady and Kane at the time. So it depends where how they want to take their 20 wickets mm. with Seam because, I mean, if we most of our wickets in New Zealand are from Seam. So if that's the, where it is, then that's where you put your, your stocks and, and that might see Ish miss out. If they don't see Spin taking wickets against this English mm. team, then they'll they'll probably just um, go for that holding spinner. I as a spectator now, probably not. I'd love to see Ish, leg spinner, having a go in there and, and starting to build a test career You know, for the future. I'd love to see that. Um, but whether it happens or not might be a different story. Mm. Andrew Ellis, as always, we appreciate your time on the programme tonight. Thank you. No, thank you, Mark. Greatly appreciated. Cheers. 22 and a half minutes after six, you're listening to SENZ. Telephone number's 0800 how much meaning did this one day loss have to you? Did you wake up and watch the game? Do you wake up feel a bit deflated because we've been beaten by Pakistan? That we've lost now five one day internationals on the trot. Might even be more. I know we'd lost the four previous. Um, you, yeah. How, how do we bring meaning to this stuff? What is it that you want? Do we need to have a punch up? in the middle of the ground to suddenly create some controversy and make it really nasty and therefore suddenly somehow make it more meaningful. I mean, I think sometimes it's the niggle between Australia and New Zealand in certain sports has actually enhanced the rivalry. Um, because really outside of the one-day World Cup, it just doesn't appear to be a lot riding on it.
you know, I love the what they used to call a World Series in Australia when three countries played, and it was New Zealand, West Indies, and Australia, and you played in different parts of, and you know, it was just huge at the time, wasn't it? We we never actually ended up winning one of those, but we got into the final a couple of times, and they were just great moments in the history of New Zealand cricket, great moments in the history of New Zealand sport. So, so what do we need to do to capture that again? Uh, two, um, if we're going to take a spinner, we will play a spinner in Mount Maunganui for that first test against England, and all the good test sides have a consistent spinner. Who do we play? Ajaz Patel? Ish Sodi? Bracewell or even Mitchell Santner? I think at the moment you probably got to go with Shish Sodi for the reasons Andrew Ellis gave. He turns the ball a lot, he's attacking, yes. He can be a bit loose at times, he can be put away, but England are going to come after us no matter what anyway. 0800-150-811 is the number. If you want to have your say, you can text us here on double eight double three. Just a reminder to our music theme tonight, songs with names in them, people's names that is, not country names or city names. We've already had Brad texting in wanting, Roxanne, I can't even sing, but anyway, that's my terrible attempt at singing one of the great songs. 25 minutes after six, we'll take a break, we'll come back with more. Keep your texts coming, songs with names in it. That is the theme tonight through to 10 o'clock. It's funny how some people's misfortune can end up being other people's fortune. The lobsters that were in the kitchen on board the Titanic, when it hit the iceberg, thought it was a miracle. When a storm hits the east coast, those on the west coast think it's brilliant because generally means it's an offshore and the surf's great, which is very much the case at the moment at Muriwai, where I live north of Auckland, and very much the case, I would imagine, at Piha. And it is Piha that are hosting this year's New Zealand Surfing Championships, and I'd imagine they'd probably be quietly pleased with the conditions, the organisers. Mr Surfing himself, Ben Kennings, joins us on the programme to discuss the New Zealand Surfing Championships. Ben, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Sorry, you're just a little bit breaking up there. Um, uh, where are you at the moment? I'm at Piha, so uh, just finished about... Okay, talk to us about the conditions at Pihar. Are they good? Are they nice and even and consistent? Murawai's been fantastic for the last couple of weeks. Yep, and I think you nailed it um, at the start. So we were worried about the weather today, but um, the, the wind didn't get too strong at Pihar, so it was all right, and it was clean offshore conditions, um, perfect little waves. We didn't have the premier divisions out today, but we had a lot of the age groups. So the super young age groups down to under-14s, and then some of the super old age groups, over 55s and over 60s. And within those age groups, do you also have different categories in terms of the types of board? Um, yep. So we have, not today, but we do have long board, stand-up paddle board, body board and knee board. Fantastic. Now, what is there a criteria for entering or can anybody enter these surfing championships? No, so it's absolutely open entry. Um, we welcome all surfers, so... Have the adaptive division as well, but 
Um, yeah, open entry. This year we got just over 440 entries. Wow. The event. So, from um, Dunedin through to Ahitara. Enjoying it so far. Yesterday, so uh, Sunday and Monday were really good. Today a bit smaller, but still the conditions were good considering that we've got that cyclone on top of us. Okay, so when do the big names, when do the Billy Stearmans sort of step up for action, the likes of the Ella Williams, the Paige Harrobs? Yep, so Billy was in action on day one and two, and also all the top. This year we didn't have Ella or Paige in the event, but we've got some really young um, female surfers, Lola Groove, Alani Morse have been showing up, a lot of the older girls that are sort of six, eight, ten years their seniors. Um, but the two premier divisions not going to surf until Friday. That's when we think the conditions are going to be a lot better. Um, we've got a, a good dump in the swell coming and offshore winds again. So Friday they, they will be back in action. Okay. And is Billy Stearman expected to win title number nine? Where are the challenges going to come from? <sighs> Yeah, million-dollar question. Um, he has every chance to, but we've got a real strong field of open men's surfers this year. There's uh, 64 in the field. Got a few guys coming back from a little hiatus. And then we've got the likes of uh, Caleb Cutmore has been very strong, defending champion. Daniel Farr has been looking really on point um, this week so far. And then with the big surf as well, we've got a lot of the local guys like uh, Elliot Pairata-Reed, who is a standout in all conditions, but particularly when it gets big. So he's a local boy here, and he uh, he could put a little bit of a spanner in the works. Mm. Someone just texted in and wanted to know whether Jay Quinn is still surfing. <laughs> Absolutely surfing. Um, not surfing in the event, though. So he's been competing in the um, local events around Gisborne, and he came to one of our national events last year, but not this weekend. Oh, not this week, sorry. Okay, well, while we're on that thing, what about the likes of Ricardo Christie? What about the likes of Daniel Kiriopa? Yes, yeah, so uh, Ricardo Christie is focusing on the world of the Australasian qualifying series. So he's heading off to Australia <clears throat> at the end of this month, and he has a string of events, maybe four to six events, um, and that's his focus at the moment. Uh, with the goal of getting into the New Zealand team and then trying to get to uh, Paris 2024, which has been held at Chopu. Daniel Kiriopa, uh, a little bit longer in the tooth, doesn't compete too much now, but is actually having a bit of an impact with a number of the younger athletes in terms of coaching and putting a lot of effort into the youngsters around the country. Mm. Been living out at Murawai, uh, my kids, some particularly, just got into a surfing. My daughter's very heavily into her surf lifesaving. We're down at the beach all the time, and we just cannot believe the size of now the surfing community. It's no longer a little niche or a certain um, group in society, it seems to be right across the board. The soft top boards have revolutionised it. Has that? Have you seen that? You talked about 400 entries. Is that sort of a record number of entries? Is, is that... You know, if you look back 10 years, is that a lot more than what they were, say, getting 10 years ago? Or, is, or or are people just surfing more for casual reasons and not so much from a competitive point of view? Yeah, I'd say both, to be honest, Mark. Um, 440 entries is a record for us. So um, we have a huge schedule this week. Uh, we're seeing a lot of parents come back and participate when their youngsters are participating as well. So... Um, that's a real positive for us. A lot of numbers in the juniors. Um, like you say, the soft top boards, revolutionising things. And the long boards for the girls particularly. Um, they like to get out there, 
not so much uh, in the competitive scene, but they like to get out there with their friends, have a go, and just sort of cruise along the ways. Um, that, that's kind of the biggest thing for them. And in terms of the overall surfing community, you know, there is 370,000 odd surfers in New Zealand when you're talking about um, recreational surfers, and about 70,000 of those uh, are said to surf weekly. So pretty big numbers, to be fair. Yeah, no, it's huge. Now, look, often sports become Olympic sports and, you know, like, well, golf's an Olympic sport, but, you know, people think, well, should it be there? We've got four golfing majors. Most of the big golfers want to win those. Tennis, it's a little bit the same. Football, it's at an under-23 level. Having surfing at the Olympics, and it's only been there once, and maybe it needs to be there two or three times in Paris and then LA and then Brisbane in 232 to maybe get a real understanding. But has it enhanced, has it further enhanced surfing? Has it given people now even more reason to take up the sport and how was the Olympic experience seen amongst the top guys in the world? Yeah, it's a, it's a real interesting one. I think surfing has always had that competitive element to it. So uh, <clears throat> when we surveyed our community prior to Tokyo, um, a lot of people were in favour. Since then, we've actually done an, an additional survey, and um, it was more favourable again. So people saw it as a positive. Uh, it gives a, a much more major spotlight to surfing. Uh, in terms of our organisation, we have a lot closer relationship with High Performance Sport New Zealand and um, New Zealand Olympic Committee, who really put a lot of energy into surfing for us, which was amazing. Um, our surfers in Tokyo, Donna Williams, Billy Stearmond, um, they were just brought right into that Olympic family, and, and that was huge. You know, they come back just absolutely buzzing about it. So um, for us, I think it's a real positive. In terms of if you look down a level and into the juniors and you're talking school surfing, the schools actually stand up um, and look at surfing and go, hey, it's an Olympic sport now. Let's put some energy into this. Let's um, have a surf team, or it's recognised in uh, a lot of the bigger schools in Auckland now as a sport, which is awesome. So all those little bits, mm. and now you're starting to see surf academies throughout the country, um, whether it's uh, Raglan, Raglan Surf Academy at the Raglan area school's been around for ages. Fongmatar has one. Um, there's one down in Dunedin with uh, one of the girls' schools down there, and I think there's a couple of others that are starting up. So Super positive for um, the junior surfing. Okay, so surfing New Zealand, um, in terms of being able to meet the demand with infrastructure, how's the organisation coping? And do we have the coaches in place to meet the demand? Uh, yeah, the coaching is one of the one of the major ones. So we have some really good coaches here, but we're also aware that just being a, a young Olympic sport, we need to develop that more. Um, we need more high-performance coaches around the country that can work with uh, the young surfers and, and bring them up to speed to get to that international standard. So something that we have to focus on a lot, um, something that we work with high-performance sport New Zealand a lot with, and, and they really want to push that all the time. So we need we need some better coaches. Um, we need a larger number of coaches throughout the regions as well. So. Um, that's something to work on for us. Okay, quick question for you, Ben, tongue-in-cheek. West Coast, best coast? <laughs> for me, well, <laughs> You live on the east coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, you know, like, we, there's no way we could be 
doing the national championships on the east coast this week, so um, the west coast delivers a lot for us. And if you're talking about consistency as well, then the west coast has yeah. it. Oh, so, so, someone just texted in here wanting to know what the difference, say, between the swell at Piha is and, say, what you might get in Wangamata. And so I guess I'll take that and extend it. What type of surfer do you need to be to win at Piha? Uh, I think you need to be very adaptable. So Piha has one huge tides uh, on a on a six-hour basis. And then from day to day, it has um, varying conditions. So today we were talking about, you know, maybe head-high surf, um, the first day, it was probably double overhead. When we're looking at Friday, it's going to be at least that and then some more. So if you're talking about the national champs over a seven-day period, uh, you've got to be able to surf some small waves, potentially onshore or offshore, building swell, could be howling onshore. You've got to be very adaptable. And I think um, that that's sort of that's what will come to the fore uh, on Saturday when we finish the national champs. Ben Kennings, as always, thank you for the update. We look forward to maybe catching up with you later in the week. Enjoy your time at Piha. Yep. Thanks, thanks, Mark. Appreciate being on the show. No worries. 18 minutes away from seven. Ben Kennings there, Mr Surfing. New Zealand surf champs on at Piha. If you do live in the Auckland, greater Auckland region, you do want to get out, watch the likes of Billy Stearmond, uh, Daniel Farr, the likes of Elliot Pirata-Reed. Um, I do encourage you, get out. Uh, no Al Williams, I apologise for that, and no Paige Harrop but some very good youngsters coming through. It is a huge sport. It's got a big, big community. Um, Like a lot of sports that become Olympic sports, it's trying to meet the demand. And a little bit like basketball, sometimes I think the funders in this country are so caught up with tradition, uh, come from just certain sporting backgrounds, that I'm not sure they've always evolved. I mean, basketball is a sport that should be well and truly funded. Are we going to win Olympic Games gold medal in basketball? Probably not. But can we get more players through to the NBA? Absolutely. And is that not the equivalent of the Olympic gold medal? Of course it is. And the thing with a guy like Stephen Adams, we get to enjoy his success probably at least once a week. The Olympics you get to enjoy once every four years. Wouldn't it be great to get more surfers on the world surfing on the pro tour? You know, Ricardo Christie had a, you know... A, a season there on it. Wouldn't it be good to get the likes of Billy Stearman through? Elliot Pirata Reid. It is a big, big sport globally. Ben. Well, the one thing which I found what Ben Kenning said was very interesting was the, actually the amount of people that. 400. Uh, well, at, at the championships, but also just that surf in general. I, I was yeah, quite blown away. 70,000. Yeah. I, I looked, I said on yesterday's show how I went surfing for the first time in 12 years, and, you know, Oriwa Beach had. I reckon it was well over 100 people in the mm. water spread out over a decent amount. And then you touch on basketball as well, and you look at the the big basketball court that's on the beach as well, yeah. and you think of the amount of people that are there shooting hoops yeah. or on the waves. It's incredible. But but where's all our media coverage? Still rugby. Yep. Still rugby league. Oh, you're right. 100% still netball. Right. Still cricket. We're still just stuck in this time warp. We haven't evolved. It's still this rugby racing and beer mentality. And I've got to say, it does my head in. I've got no problem with those sports getting coverage, but open your eyes, people, man. See the revolution. This is not an evolution. This is a revolution. Cycling's another one, whether it be mountain biking, road cycling. I mean, golf is still huge, isn't it? Um, how many people play golf? You know what I mean? Oh, it's yeah, like, get, out, get, right. get out to Takapuna Beach and the North Shore beaches in Auckland. See how many people on Saturday morning are actually sea swimming now. Not pool swimming, but sea swimming. Wetsuits have revolutionised that area. You know, move with it. Smart businesses move and evolve. Media organisations are businesses. Evolve with the sport. 
You know, redefine your definition, broaden the horizon. 16 minutes away from 7, you're listening to SENZ. It is 11 and a half minutes away from 7, you're listening to SENZ. Something slightly different after 7 o'clock, we're going to catch up with a local legend of New Zealand sport, a man by the name of Alan Reeves. He's an event commentator and MC. does a lot of the local events here in Auckland, the North Island, a lot of events at a national level as well. After 23 years, he's decided to call it a day. And I always say this, don't underestimate the importance of a good event commentator or a good commentator. Often the event itself is the Mona Lisa. It's the masterpiece, but to enhance the masterpiece, you've got to put it in the gold frame and put it under the right light. I think that's the job of the MC. That's the job of the event commentator. So we'll have a chat to Alan Reeves about his time in sport, how it's changed, his memorable moments, some of the people that he has met, and ultimately why he's decided after 20-odd years to call it a day. Uh, So we'll do that after 7 o'clock. But our music theme has been around songs featuring people's names. And I've got to say, Ben, it's different, but I'm liking it. I do need to hear Delilah from Tom Jones a little bit later. Sure, we can do that. Love that song. 1968, Delilah. Have you got a favourite? I mean, what made you come up with this one? Well, it's just been lots of lots and lots of hours and extensive research of just different categories of music I can play out because you think you do five shows a week, you think, okay, so that's at least 20 categories a month. So you've got to really do some forward planning. So it's literally just anything. I've just, you know, it's one of those things you just sit around, you look and you think, oh, songs that talk about TVs or, you know, songs that, you know, talk about food or whatever. So it's literally just whatever comes to your mind and then you do a bit of a, you have a think about the category. Mm. You think, okay, what songs kind of mention about TVs? and Would the most famous song featuring a name, and we can maybe, we did this last night, we put two songs on. The theme last night was songs with harmonicas in it. And we ended up coming down with, what did we come in? We had The Piano Man. Yeah, and Heart of Gold. Heart of Gold by Neil Young. And we decided which of these two iconic songs both feature very, very strong presence of the harmonica. And we actually decided in terms of the impact on a song, we actually went with The Piano Man and The Finish. Um, And it's not based on who you like more as an artist, but just in terms of the song we played both. Is there a more famous song than Billie Jean from Michael Jackson? In terms of name, I don't think so. I mean, that would arguably be the biggest selling single in history, wouldn't it? Featuring a name, I'm trying to think of others. I mean, you've got Mandy from Barry Manilow. I only know that because I was I was running the other day with a playlist on, and the playlist came to an end, and I was listening to sort of almost ballads, and for some reason it decided to then play Mandy from Barry Manilow, which I didn't actually mind, to be honest. Black Betty's a big one. Yep. Like Betty's another one. Oh, I, I, when you actually do think about it. Hey Joe from Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I, that would probably be the next one. But when I when I was going through the list of all the songs as well, but you know, I, I even you'd Hey Jude from the Beatles. Yeah, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is another one, which they reckon what stood for LSD during their sort of more hallucinogenic days, or that particular thing. It, it's interesting when I was living in Japan in nineteen. 89, I had friends, I lived in Japan for about three years when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, etc. And um, I discovered the entire Van Halen collection and always remember Jamie's crying. And then Aerosmith came out with Jamie's Got a Gun, which was about 19, what was that, about 1991, 1992? But you might out there um, have some ideas in terms of songs with names in them. I can give you my personal favourite. Please do. 
my personal favorite in terms of what I've got on the list, I I really love Romeo and Juliet by the Dire Straits. Yep. It's probably my favorite Dire Straits song, and I can't tell I can't give a logical explanation to why. I just I just re- I just really like it. Just I, I, that's all I can really say. I just really enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I, I think for me a long time ago, and I think I remember. I think I I think I got the Maggie May from Rod Stewart. Always enjoyed that. Angie from the Rolling Stones. I think it's just nice and bluesy. Just trying to think of stuff with. Oh, no, no. Well, that is, but. One of the great songs, one of the great songs is My Michelle from Guns N' Roses off Appetite for Destruction. Went to the concert, right, 1988, first time they played the Big Top, December 19th, 1988, crowd of 10,000. This was just pure black leathers that only really just started to establish themselves. GNR Lies, which had patience and stuff, had just come out in New Zealand. Um, he stands up and he goes, this is a song about a girl who woke up one day with $1,500 worth of cocaine and it was gone in an hour. The Human Vacuum Cleaner, My Michelle. I've never forgotten that. Love the song. Nothing to do with the cocaine side of it, just love the song. And it was the one song at the concert this year they didn't play was was My Michelle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Jeremy as well. By... Oh, King Jeremy. The wicked ruled his world. Yeah, that's about a kid that he what got into a scrap with at school who ends up going and committing suicide. Uh, it was a kid in a school in Seattle that yeah. Yeah, he used to get bullied and class, stuff, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, not not great at all. Not great at all. Um, yeah. So anyway, you might have some thoughts on songs with names on them. In fact, I think what we might just do to take out the top of the air, we might just put another song on with a name in it to stick with this theme. Take us up to that break. Come back after seven with Alan Reeves. Continue the discussion. Continue talking sport. If you've got any thoughts, double eight double three. And again, you can phone the program on oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. What's the song, Ben? Jolene. Oh, brilliant. Dolly Parton, love it. Johnny B. Good, yes, the theme this hour is, well, this right through till 9 o'clock tonight, songs with names in them. Is there a bigger one than Billie Jean from Michael Jackson? Keep your kicks coming here on double eight double three. My guest now on the programme is the voice of a lot of sporting events around the country. He's been doing it for 20-odd, 23 years, and today decided that he would retire from being an event MC, an event commentator. And you would have heard me say this earlier. Events are always going to be the masterpiece. But like any good masterpiece, to enhance them, you need to put them in good light, you need to put them in the right frame. And that is the job of a good commentator and a good MC. Alan Reeves is amongst the very best in the game. He's done running events, triathlon events, swimming events, you name it, you name a sport, he's probably been involved, whether it be an elite level at a community level at a school level. You might not necessarily know his name, but you've probably heard his voice, particularly if you've done some of the big marathons, not just in the Auckland region, not just in the North Island region, but nationally as well. So I thought it only appropriate that we recognise and honour Alan tonight by bringing him onto the programme. Alan Reeves, good evening, welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. You'll be familiar with a lot of songs. You've always got a wonderful playlist that you managed to uh, get out at most sporting events. Songs with names in them. Do you have a favourite? Uh, Ring of Fire. Ring of Johnny Fi- Cash. Johnny Cash. There you go. Okay. Yep. Ring, Ring of Fire, Johnny yep. Cash. Now, Alan, 23 yep. years in the game, you decided enough is enough. What made you come to that decision? Uh, I think um, I wanted to sort of get out of it when, you know, I'd um, I'd made my mark and 
I didn't want to start going down the other side of the hill. And I've also uh, involved in Auckland singles and also, as you know, DJing. I DJed your wedding with Heidi. And so I thought, yeah, can't do everything. He's, you know, cut out the sporting events and focus on the other two. Now, Alan, you come from a school teaching background and then about 23 years ago you decided that you might want to sort of pick a microphone up and you started doing a small event and this business sort of blossomed. What made you sort of switch career paths and decided that sports and being an MC and being a commentator was a preferred career than perhaps school teaching? Well, what I did when I was uh, school teaching at uh, Tuakau College, I started the Pukekohe to Tuakau uh, road race, which became a national event. So that gave me a taste of putting events on. And then th- uh, that was in the 70s. Through the 80s, I started organising triathlon events. Um, in fact, Cameron Brown was one of the first competitors out at Moraitai. So I had, some of those events were very, very large. Uh, splash, flash and dash I had, um, stride, ride and glide at Ardmore Airport. Um, so I got my taste of um, putting on events. Of course, no traffic management, you know, just just a couple of people holding a flag on the corner of the road. So that gave me the taste. And then I got into a business, uh, once I resigned from teaching, I got into a business in Pukekohe um, selling fertiliser to market gardeners. And then I sold that. And from 2000, I thought, what am I going to do now? Let's combine the DJing and the music with sporting events. So started um, buying all the sports equipment and it just grew from there. Yeah, Alan, and, and, and when you look back over the 23 years, how many different sports do you think you've sort of commentated or emceed? I would say probably a, a dozen because um, it wasn't just the sporting, but it was also the, all the involvement with the schools. So you take Baradine, you do the swimming, you do their parades, you do Epsom Athletics, Glendowie, all of the, you know, then you start doing college sports and that leads you into a whole range of different sports. So um, yeah, a large a, a large selection of sports. And do you have a preferred involved. do you have a preferred sport or sport that you enjoy, say perhaps more than others, or a, or a particular event that you really look forward to, where it's not even about the money? Well, it's like I just want to be involved in this because it's so cool. Well, because of my uh, sporting background with uh, marathon running and then Ironman, um, my preference is triathlons. So I spend a lot of time. I mean, my greatest sporting achievement was, you know, finishing the Hawaii Ironman in 1988, making the bike cut off by 23 seconds and then finishing two minutes before midnight. So triathlon has always been in my blood and um, I enjoyed those events the most. Yeah, Hawaii Ironman 1988, one of the few that's been there and done it, Alan, and that would have been won by what day, Scott, in 88, was it? Yes, and I was only there... Not by qualifying, obviously, because I was always back of the pack, but because of my commentating at Ironman and with Keith Thorpe and Rick Falding and Paul Gleeson, they uh, they gave me a ticket to get uh, into the race. Oh, and I'll always be indebted to them. Yeah, no. In fact, I saw Keith yesterday at the gym. And, uh, you know, he was 18 years with uh, New Zealand Ironman. Yeah, no, absolute icons in the sport and the evolution of the Ironman in this country. Alan, you you mentioned Cameron Brown, but I'd imagine over the years too, you would have probably seen a, young, a lot of young athletes who have gone on to do good things or become recognised in this country. Who are some of the others that y- you can remember? 
Well, um, you know, in the early, not too long ago, of course, Hayden Wild was coming up through the ranks. Um, the St. Kent's boys always, uh, Dylan McCulloch and Sam Ward, even though Sam Ward, you know, got uh, got a bad deal at the, at the not going to the Olympics. But seeing all those young ones, um, because you do the school events and then, you know, 20 years later, they're still going in the sport. Um, so, yeah, I did see a lot of people up and comers. And, and what about outside of triathlon? Because you, you have a bit of an involvement in swimming. You, you do a lot of swimming events as well. And so you've um, yeah been lucky to see the likes of Lewis Clearbird up close and personal. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Lewis has, um, has succeeded very, very well. Um, just just a whole number of my own um, in my own family, um, Liv Peebles, um, Wendy Petrie's daughter is, is doing well. It's it's great to see them uh, coming through through the ranks and the amount of time that they have to spend uh, in that water. It's it's incredible, isn't it? Really, yeah. The commitment they they make. Yeah, Alan. You know, how would you define the role of a, a good event MC? I mean, particularly when you're standing there on the finish line, you've got athletes finishing. I mean, what, what's your sort of mindset? How would you describe your role? Well, um, first of all, I think it comes down to um, preparation. Um, you know, this is this is the thing you've got to know. Uh, who the crowd is. It's, it's a bit like being a DJ. You've got to read the crowd. Well, you've got to know who the crowd is in terms of your music. You've got to have a connection with those competitors. You've got to know who the ones who are likely to be at the front of the field and also have a story about those who are at the back of the field. And Garth Barford is a classic case. One of my highlights was um, emceeing his 80th birthday party at the museum. Yeah, now, now, so you've so, got to know about these people. Yeah, sorry, Alan, for people outside of Auckland, Garth Barfoot is the, one of the principal partners in New Zealand's largest owned family real estate company called Barfoot & Thompson. You'll see them across the blues, Auckland rugby, and a very, very successful business, but a wonderful philanthropist, and Garth Galloway, even at 85, 86 years of age, still goes strong, still goes to a number of marathons around the world. Exactly. So it wasn't only his the money he's put into the sport, and uh, you know, not, obviously not just triathlon, but all sorts of sports. And, and now um, being taken over by his his daughter Kerry, who's doing a great job as well. But the fact that he is still going at 85 years of age, it gives hope. It just shows that age is no barrier to doing these sports. Mm. You know, it's just looking after your health. I mean, you've always said health is your wealth, and that's exactly exactly right. So, um, yeah, knowing your competitors, knowing your sport, being confident, um, interviewing at the end, you know, um, it's uh, they are, I think, the key um, qualities of a good commentator. Yeah. Now, Alan, people will be familiar that have ever done the Round Taupo Challenge because that's one of the events that you do and you're very lucky one year to work alongside one of New Zealand's greatest ever cyclists and the great Greg Henderson. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was that was a highlight. Um I one of one of my highlights was um, actually emptying the prize giving where they had ten thousand you know people uh, because they always um, the Lake Topol Cycle Challenge always had amazing prizes you know really good I mean even even giving away a car uh, you know a few years mm. so um, that that's been a that's been a real highlight. 
And the event directors and your stuff you've worked with, the likes of Frank Clark, who was a professional triathlete in his days, has been very good in keeping the sport alive here in Auckland. Um, I'd imagine you've worked with some pretty good operators, and I'd imagine too, we don't need to name names, maybe some event organisers um, perhaps not quite as good. And again, they can pre- well, they can present different challenges. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's funny you should mention Frank Clark from First Tier because um, he has set the benchmark. You know, why he hasn't... Um, organised a national event or been asked to do that but he is absolutely meticulous and I was remember um, at the Mount Maunganui uh, half marathon um, he, I was, he, he actually called me over, he said Reese, what socks are you wearing and I wasn't wearing the sponsor's socks and he said look would you mind just going and, and changing them so, I mean, that is the attention to detail that that guy put in and the crew that he has around him. So they're there the day before setting everything up and then within, mm. as soon as the prize giving's over, they're all dismantling. And they, they, they do it for a few T-shirts and, and, and that, you know, and some food. It's just an incredible business model that other race directors should follow. Yeah. Now, Alan, you've worked also too on the Wheatbix Kiwi Kids Triathlon, which is incredibly popular. It's almost an iconic event. It's There's not too many kids in New Zealand who haven't uh, done that uh, as part of their youth. Um, but they're an organisation too who, let's say, have some religious connections. And so at times you've had to be a little bit careful in terms of the type of music that you do play, but also as an MC and playing music, you've also, I'd imagine too you've got to get a pretty quick read on the room, the type of athlete that you've got, the demographic, and then what play a music that probably fits that demographic. Exactly, yes. Um, you, they were very, very fussy about the music you played. Um, it's nothing explicit at all, obviously. Um, and you know, setting up until after you know sunset. That was another one. So you you had to set up, you know, when it was sort of dark. And um, Cause, I, cause I are, are they are they it. are they the Mormon Church, Alan? Um, no, aren't they the Seventh Day Adventists? Oh, they might be Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah, I, I'm certainly not judging I them. I, just, I was just just trying to bring some, just yeah. trying to provide some background in I, terms I, of some of the challenges yes, because, with different organisations. Absolutely. Yes, because I think their Lord their, their Lord's Day is on the Saturday, isn't it? I think. Mm. So, mm. Um, so you had to be careful. But I remember travelling down to Christchurch and um, setting all the gear up there, and it was blustery and really blowing a gale and one of the speakers fell over and uh, hit a girl on the head. Uh, uh, Fortunately, she wasn't too badly injured, but boy, from then on, they were really, you know, if it was blowing at all, we needed to put all the speakers on the ground, and fair enough too. I really stuffed up badly then. Oh, I know, but that's life, isn't it? I mean, no no genuine intent. Everybody in business at some point's probably (laughs) got a similar story they can tell in in sort of the context of their own business. You mentioned, Alan, when you first started out, just basically having a bit of bunting tape. Um, How much more challenging is it for event directors in terms of what's now required with legislation and getting stuff past council? Uh, I mean, I I can understand why a lot of people... It's almost too much work to put an event on these days, isn't it? it it's huge. It's huge. You know, the health and safety uh, um, program runs, you know, 20, 30 pages. Um, when we went to uh, with Frank Clark to Villa Maria, we had to have our, each 
contractor had to have their own um, health and safety program, and that had to be approved by by management there. But you know, traffic management, all the cones, all the all the programs that you know, to, it, it's costing thousands and thousands of dollars. And I I feel sorry for the race directors because we need them to make a profit to stay in business, but it's it's getting very very difficult for them. And that's why a lot of the people like Total Sport and Aaron Carter and people like that are going off-road to try and get away from all that traffic management. Yeah, and then people pick up an entry fee and go, I can't believe how expensive it is to do a race. And you go, well, guys, that the event organisers need to make some money out of it. But really, you're absorbing yeah. the cost of what really is just a whole lot of red tape. Yeah, exactly. No, you're quite right. Mm. In fact, I th- you know, it's, it's gone too far, really. Mm. Well, Alan, um, all of best with your future endeavours. It's um, an absolute privilege and pleasure um, getting to know you over the years and sometimes standing alongside of you. Sometimes you welcome me home um, and we, we sort of live in similar worlds. Um, just before we yeah. do let you go, just tell us a little bit about the singles that you do do because you do sort of uh, do a bit of matchmaking through some of the, some of the um, events that you do run. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, relationships break up. So when I uh, line up to DJ a wedding, I know I've got one this Saturday. I know that half of them are going to probably not last. And so I come in with Auckland singles. If they're over 40 and the relations have broken up, not everyone wants to date on the Internet. Some people want to meet people face to face. So that's when I come in. I have single nights and I have singles parties where people can meet each other. I go Whangarei, Tauranga, Pukekohe, uh, Auckland and North Shore, and it's working very well. Alan Reeves, absolute privilege and a pleasure. Congratulations on the last 23 years, mate. You've uh, made a big difference to the event industry in this part of the world, and I know there's a lot of people out there that um, will recognise your voice, and you have become iconic. Thanks very much, Mark. Alan Reeves there, remarkable man, doing wonderful things at events bringing that colour, making it more than just a sporting contest, making it an experience. Puts the microphone down after 23 years. 17 and a half minutes after seven. It is 22 and a half minutes after seven. You're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you alongside of me, Ben Francis. Our music theme this hour is, well, not this hour, through to nine o'clock tonight, is songs with names in them. So clearly Roxanne. Someone saying Sweet Caroline, one of the great songs, of course. That that Sweet Caroline, actually, would be up there with Billie Jean, wouldn't it? Michael Jackson's Billie Jean would be far wider heard, played, and probably reach a far wider demographic than perhaps Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. Neil's Sweet Caroline clearly played a lot at major sporting events now. Um, iconic. Well, I think that's probably part of the reason probably why you're putting it up there because if it wasn't at the sporting events, you probably wouldn't hear it so much. But then I guess that's what makes it iconic in its own right. But actually, what I've got I've got something to throw at you here, which yeah. I have, well, I've not told you about this, but you would have seen the news that came out this morning about Gareth Bale announcing his retirement sure. from all football. Mm. And I've seen the term, which is a discussion you've you've had before about has been headlines such as Welsh legend football, or well not football legend, but Welsh football legend Gareth Bale announces retirement. And, and it's that, that use of the word legend. And I was very curious to know whether does that, does, does he warrant that, that title? 
Well, along with, um, uh, what's his name, Manchester United? Ryan Giggs. He's arguably Wales' best ever footballing export. I mean, he did what, I think he won five Champion Leagues, three La Ligas, three Club World Cups. Towards the end of his playing career, he really wasn't a starter for Real Madrid. Scored an absolutely cracking goal against Liverpool in 2018 to win the Champions League. I think within Welsh football, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you would consider Gareth Bale a legend at a micro level within Wales. Would you consider Gareth Bale to be a legend of the game? At a much bigger scale, no. Legend is left for Maradona. Legend is left for Pele, Ronaldo. Um, there have been some others over the years, like of Eusebio back in the 1960s, um, Johan Cruyff. But I think when you're talking about and using the word legend, I think once you start going on sort of, I don't know, are there, are there more than 10 legends in a sport? I mean, do you become a legend in tennis if you win Wimbledon? You become a legend in tennis if you win five Wimbledons? That's, that's fair. That's a fair statement. I mean, Boris Becker, I think if you win five major, five Grand Slams or six Grand Slams, are you considered a legend in tennis? But, but then I, I guess then you're kind of like, you're kind of searching for that reason to call them a legend, which then it kind of doesn't. Yeah, it's a hard one. I just get annoyed when I see Tim Southey, 350 test wickets, he's a legend by somebody in the media here. No, he's not. He's one of New Zealand's greats, and he'll go on and hopefully surpass Richard Hadley and get 432 test wickets. But he's not a legend of cricket. I mean, I think the legends of the game we all know, they go across. Legends actually. I think what defines a legend is that they actually become what I call brand athletes. They're not just known within their sport. They're actually household names that everybody, whether they're into golf, whether they're into basketball or whatever, knows who they are. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. Um, And I think even to a degree back in his day, Wayne Gretzky in hockey. And then you go and look at that guy's records. They're legends. You know, Edmund Hillary is a legend because he conquered Everest. Roger Bannister became a legend because he became the first man in history to break four minutes for the mile. Yet there are other runners that have gone on and done greater things in terms of winning Olympic Games gold medals. But sometimes you become a legend because you become the first. Love to have this debate. What are some of those words? And We've sort of touched on it a little bit in recent times. But maybe haven't given people the opportunity. What are some of the words that do frustrate you that are thrown around too loosely? We use them a lot here. I mean, can, in all seriousness, can you have a legend in women's rugby? I'm not sure you can yet. I think the sport's too much in its infancy. I don't think it's global enough. I think you can use the word original pioneer. I think you can have the word great. Maybe 20 years from now you can start throwing those words around. So you, you, you essentially you're saying that a word like great can be probably used a bit more freely, but not too much. But a legend, as you said, should be set aside for those five, those ten actual legends, those yeah. ones that changed the way we perceive the sport. Yeah, but, but I think at times we hear all black great, and then you read about the all black great, and you go, well, they weren't really a great. Oh, they played 12 tests. Yeah, I mean, an all black great is a Ben Smith an all-black great is probably a Mills Milayina that's played 100 games. 
Um, legends of the game. Without doubt, I think McCaw will go down as a legend in the game. I think Dan Carter will go down. Again, you need time sometimes for that word to be, ele- to, for that word to be elevated or for them to be elevated to that word. Um, look, if you're asking me a legend of the game, I think there's some grey areas. See, I look at a guy like Christian Cullen. I just think he was the greatest fullback the world's seen. I think he's the best attacking player. But he's a rugby great he's unfortunately not going to be considered a rugby legend. Now, there'll be other parts of the world in England, they will use the word legend for a player that we might not necessarily use the word for. In Ireland, Brian O'Driscoll, they will say he's a legend. I'll say that he was overrated. And so it's it's a little bit subjective, isn't it? But I'd like to get your thoughts on 0800 150 811. There have been some legendary teams, haven't there? The Invincibles of 1924. You've got the, what they call them, the Black Sox of 1919 for all the wrong reasons in baseball. The legendary Bulls team under Jordan. So let's expand the conversation. Jump on the phone. Give me some names. Great, legend, good. Let's have the discussion. Throw some out there for me. You can text us here on double eight double three. You can telephone us on 0800 Dance exponents from the exponents. Oh, of course. I completely left that off the list. That would be the most famous song, I think, by a New Zealand band, wouldn't it? I well, mean, it's, it's, the only absolute, one. it's absolutely iconic, isn't it? It's probably the only one that springs to mind. Immediately. Yeah, we will play it the next break. It's All just right. one of those songs that comes on and you're just like, yeah, baby. Great New Zealand song, How the World Did Not Like This. Hey, I've had some good um, texts come in just on the names and then also just on some of those talking points around the word legend. Hi, Watto, songs with names. I used to like Sweet Caroline until Sporting Stadium started singing it. The most adulterated song has to be Living Next Door to Alice. Alice? Who the, you know, F is Alice. Um, I remember I was at the World Triathlon Champs in Cancun, Mexico in 1995. There were two songs that take me straight back to the parties there after the World Championships in duathlon and triathlon. The Margarena, the Margarena had just come out in Mexico and was huge. Hadn't hit New Zealand yet, and we're all doing the Margarena. A few drinks down us, to be fair. And the other one was living next door to Alice. Always remember that. And so, Carlos, thank you for sending that in. Uh, someone texting in, Michael Jones, to me, was a great. Yeah, Michael Jones was a great. I think Michael Jones, to me, might go down as a legend of the game. I still think the word legend can be thrown around more closely to All Blacks than probably any other side in the world. Jones changed the game, the way it was played. I still think he's the best seven we've ever had. I think McCaw, because of all the other things, longevity, captaincy, um, stands on his own as well. But in terms of the pure position of seven, Jones was the best in my opinion. This is a really good one that comes from Glenn. Hi Mark, was Stephen Gurney a great or a legend of Coast to Coast? Well if you're looking at purely as a Coast to Coast, he's a legend of the Coast to Coast, he's the greatest ever winner. Braden Curry's right up there. Um, Gordon Walker, who coaches Lisa Carrington's won it three times. But if you're talking to If you're talking about a single event, 
then yeah, Cameron Brown's a legend of the New Zealand Ironman, having won it 12 times. Steve Gurney, a legend of the coast to coast. I'm sure there are other, a lot of sports out there that have that one player, that one participant that has etched their name in the history books and left a pretty impeccable record that's going to be tough to beat. I'd love to hear who they are. 0800. 150811 is the number. I'd like to hear from you, double eight double three. You know, if, if you're looking at greats of the game in cricket, you're going to go Hadley, without a doubt, Sir Richard Hadley. I think he goes down as uh, arguably a legend of the game. The Australians might not like to say it, but you've only got to look at his record. You've only got to look at the number of five-wicket bags, the number of ten-wicket bags, the number of tests he's played. He's right up there. But if, if you look at New Zealand athletes, have we ever had an absolute Michael Jordan, have we ever had a Tiger Woods equivalent? It would have to be in rugby, wouldn't it? But rugby is not a truly global sport. So people in China wouldn't have heard of them. People in a lot of Europe wouldn't have heard of them. Arguably the most famous name in New Zealand sport, I think, would probably have to be McLaren. McLaren F1, Bruce McLaren. The logo is basically a Kiwi, isn't it? Is there a more famous name in international sport that's come out of New Zealand than McLaren? Text us, 0800 Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Um, going off the harmonica song, or greatest harmonica songs you were talking about last night with Ben, I don't know if you would have heard of the Jeff Healy band. He's one of my favourite Canadian guitarists. He, he, was, he, 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 he was the blind guy, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah, He, di- he, he died he, a few years ago, didn't he? He did, died of cancer at the age of 41. But yeah. he had a strong 20-plus year career mm. where being blind from the age of three he managed to teach himself the guitar and played it in a totally unique way, like a lot of slide mm. and a lot of, he even did the Jimi Hendrix thing where he played the guitar behind his head and uh, with his teeth even. And um, he recorded an album, Songs from the Road, which was tracks he played in Toronto, which was where he was from, and Norway and London, England in 2006, 2007. He had a really good harmonica player with him, Dave Murphy, who also played keyboards and tracked six on off the album Songs of the road is or songs from the road is an old blues number called Hoochie Coochie Man mm. and that's got killer harmonica on it. Yeah, and I'm, any song by any song by Jeff Healy is like absolutely stellar anyway. Yeah, I've got to say I love a good harmonica, I love a good trumpet and I love a good saxophone. Yeah, definitely. And um going off a good saxophone and brass instruments, absolutely some of my favourite numbers is anything by Earth Wind and Fire. Okay, what about songs with names in them? Songs with names on. Uh, well, Sweet Caroline, that's a given. You go to any baseball game, especially Sydney Blue, Blue Sox uh, games here in Sydney, and people go nuts and get totally into it when the song's played. Um, gosh, what other ones could you do? Well, I wrote a, uh instrumental lately for the special lady in my life called Danielle, so that would probably be my favourite. Very biased there. Well, Mark, one other uh, night I'll get you to sing it for us. I won't get you to do it now for me, Mark, though. Well, it's an it's an instrumental, so it's a little hard to sing. Oh, you can put could some play. lyrics to it, mate. I could do some gangster rap to it. I could try. I could try. 
And um, in terms of legends, I'd probably say, on an Australian basis, I'd say Don Bradman, definitely, yeah, and yeah. the Invincible. Yeah, Bradman. And in New, in New Zealand terms, I'd say people like Edmund Hillary, uh, David Kurt, Sean Fitzpatrick, and on the women's side, I would definitely say Dame Nolene Tarua would be a woman's legend, along with Lois Muir. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think within uh, thanks, Mark, and I think within the netball circles, but on a global stage, I mean, no one's ever heard of them. Um, I, I don't know whether I agree with your sentiment regarding Lois Muir and um, Nolene Tarua. Uh, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced on Fitzpatrick either. I think good All Blacks, great All Blacks legends. Do they sit alongside of Donald Bradman? No. Uh, is mountain climbing a sport? Um, Oh, it looks a huge amount of physical activity, expedition, and adventure. Not sure it really falls under the true definition of sport, but without a doubt, arguably, maybe you know New Zealand's most famous ever New Zealander. But I think, in a sporting sense, McLaren I think is the one name that stands above all others. You know, you think F1, how big that sport is, everyone just heard of McLaren. A lot of people not, not not be aware of necessarily of the heritage and necessarily understand who McLaren was and his connections here with New Zealand, but it's all documented. Uh, someone's texting in here saying, the greatest Welsh football player by considerable margin was John Charles, considered one of the finest all-round players of all time. His Wikipedia says it all. Also, a song that is sung on football terraces around the world is Hey Jude, absolutely by the Beatles. Keep the text coming. Jump on the phone. We do have spare lines. You're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150811. You can text us on 8833. 17 minutes, or oh, 13 minutes away from 8 o'clock. 0800 150811. We're talking about the use of the word legend, the use of the word great, words that are thrown around maybe just a little bit too loosely. What defines great? What defines legend? Who is the most famous name in New Zealand sport? Cal from Turingi, his phone. Hi, Cal. Welcome. G'day, mate. Just, um, I'm pretty sure, and you'd know because you're a sports journalist, but there's only one New Zealander that's ever made the front page of the New York Times. I know David Turn made the sports pages of it, but that was John Alamu. Yeah, John That guy, yeah. if you go through the books of rugby professionals now, they say he changed the game for rugby. He made it professional. And I think you could rate that guy along with Hillary. He was a legend. Yeah, look, I, I think that is absolutely brilliant, Cal. You're 100% correct. We we here in New Zealand know our rugby so well that we still find flaws in Lomu. But if you just stand back from it and you look at Lomu on a global stage, he is arguably the most famous rugby player that has probably walked to the earth um, and I say that because he played in an era, of course, when, you know, communication and, you know, the world could tune in and watch it. And I think that you're right. I mean, if you think about the one great rugby legend, whether, it, you know, taking out of oh, who the Northern Hemisphere thinks the greatest and who the Southern Hemisphere, I think globally everybody would agree that Jonah Lomu did exactly what Diego Maradona did in football in the 1980s and what probably we're seeing with Messi now. Brilliant call, mate. Okay, thanks, mate. Yeah, lovely to have you on the program. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Lomu, you know, forget the intricacies of the game that we all understand about defence and all the rest of it and work rates. In terms of putting the spotlight on rugby, in terms of um, being recognised outside of the niche, 
Lomu was one of them. Is his name as well known globally as McLaren? Probably not. But I think the most famous rugby player that's probably walked the earth in terms of across Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. And yet we name the All Black Greatest 15. Not everybody agrees with Lomu being on one wing. Because of maybe some of the defensive frailties or the work rate, but I think Lomu at his best you'd have on a wing any day, wouldn't you? Absolutely you would. You might have some thoughts. 0800 150 I just did a little bit of a reading on um, John Charles. Uh, someone texted in. We were just talking about Gareth Bale, the great Welsh footballer who's won five Champions League trophies, just retired from football at the age of 33. Um, we talked about him... Um, Ryan Giggs is the two best Welsh footballers. But in fact, John Charles, he was a Welsh footballer. He lived from 1931 to 2004. He played as a centre forward or as a centre back, best known for his first stint at Leeds United and Juventus. Remember, Leeds were a very, very highly regarded club back in the day. He was rated by many as the greatest all-round footballer who ever came from Britain to ever come from Britain. So there you go, not just Wales, but Britain. And for its 50th anniversary in 2004, UEFA asked each of its then 52 member associations to nominate one player as the single most outstanding player of the period, 1954 to 2003, and Charles was chosen as the Golden Player of Wales by its national association in November 2003. Would they consider Bale in the mix since 2003? Maybe. But I think Bale now just needs time out of the game, doesn't he? In 30 years' time, how will Wales look at Gareth Bale? How will Wales look at Ryan Giggs? Ryan Giggs has got himself into a bit of trouble off the field recently. Um, in regards to assault charges and various things, and that might just put a little bit of an asterisk next to his name. But please... Continue. Let us know those terminologies that frustrate you that are thrown around too loosely. What defines a legend? You can have a legend within a sport, and then you can have an absolute legend who, as I said, is what I call a brand athlete. Not just known within that sport, but known by everybody. And sometimes that's what the Olympic Games is very good for, isn't it? It takes a sport that, a lot of people might not know a lot about comes to the Olympics. We just want to win gold medals. That sport suddenly is put in front of us. We win a medal and you suddenly become a bit of a household name and not just well-known within your sport, Luca Jones and Canoe Slalom, case in point. I'm just trying to remember the... Who was the New Zealand trampoline who won the bronze medal at the Olympics in Tokyo. Dylan uh, Schmidt. Dylan Schmidt. There you go. And I did know Dylan Schmidt, but see, Dylan Schmidt, probably everybody, if you said, I oh, know who's the best tramp, if, if you live in the trampoline circles, you're probably going, oh, who's the man? You go, well, Dylan Schmidt. No one in New Zealand would know. Goes to the Olympics, wins a bronze medal. Suddenly people know who Dylan Schmidt is, don't they? Um, and that's the great thing about those sports. And so that is the window sometimes where you can – Take yourself from being with a legend within your sport to actually a legend within New Zealand and possibly a legend worldwide. 
if you do your homework actually on Lisa Carrington, she's the most successful female kayaker in Olympic history for individual events. There have been other athletes that have won more medals, but not in individual events. Anyway, it is coming up to five minutes away from eight o'clock. We'll talk some baseball after eight. We're going to talk some basketball too with Cameron Luke. Cameron Luke out of the United States? Australia. Out of Australia, Cameron. Okay, so my apologies to you, Cameron. So we're going to talk some hoops around about 8.30. So I thought what we might just do, Ben, is bring up another song with another name in it, just to keep the theme going. Oh, I love it, Delilah. Brilliant. Great song. Great song, Ben. Far better than me waffling on. Disappointing weekend for baseball. I'm looking forward to calling games on Friday night. They were then doubleheader on Saturday. They were both rained out, ended up having a doubleheader yesterday, and it didn't go the way of the Tuatara, losing two games to the Canberra Cavalry. Tuatara was sitting one place higher than Canberra in the Northeast Division, sitting there behind Brisbane, hopefully looking to try and make the playoffs, but things have suddenly swung a little bit, probably more in Canberra's favour. Anyway, Kangaroo Jack, they call him. Big Jack Barry. Slugger. Plays right field for the Tuatara. Joins us on the program. Evening to you, Jack. Welcome. Hey, mate. How you going? Yeah, good, buddy. How, how, how are you enjoying your time with the Tuatara? Mate, it's, it's, I'm having a good time, 100%. It, it's always a, a different transition going and playing in, uh, in a different country. Um, but for the most part, it's a beautiful country. I've been doing whatever I can to travel around and check it out. Um, but as as for the team, it's it's been it's been great. We're just you know, coming into the last couple of weeks into a uh, a championship run well, yeah, to to make the playoffs. So yeah, and, and being in being an Aussie, there's always a lot of banter between the Kiwis and the Aussies. You've been accepted into the Kiwi now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we're we're all we're all pretty close uh, in 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 the team. Um, especially with with the amount of diversity that we do have because we have we have guys from Japan, Taiwan. Venezuela, um, and then you know it, it makes it kind of easy for me too, so because there's a lot of English-speaking dudes. But for the most part, everyone's everyone's all boys and chill. So, <laughs> so how did you end up signing a contract and playing for the Tuatara? I mean, you've been in the ABL, you've been with Melbourne previously. I think also you might have been with Perth previously. No, I was with uh, Canberra. Canberra. My apologies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I had uh, Regan reach out to me, um, uh, one of someone else who's around in baseball in Australia, Ben Moore, um, with Down Under Travellers, I think is a, he has his program. He reached out to Regan and then Regan reached out to me um, and we basically just were, were chatting in the early stages of last year um, to get me to come over and play for him because I heard that they were starting back up um, because of the, the period with with COVID. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was an opportunity that I, I, I wanted to take uh, and any, any chance I get to go play baseball in a different country and, and go and go experience a different culture, I'm always down for. Um, so I was, I was very excited to jump all over the, mm. jump all over pl- playing with, with Auckland. How did you end up making baseball your sport, particularly in a country like Australia where, you know, cricket very much the national game? 
Um, yeah, yeah, mate. It's it's a bit of a weird, it's, uh, definitely a weird one, especially yeah, just exactly like you said. Um, I was uh, I started playing baseball in Cairns when I was like 13 years old. Um, previously, I did a lot of skateboarding and swimming, um, and I was on the way, way to the skate park one day, and I saw some people playing baseball at a field near the skate park, and I decided to stop in and check it out. And um, I still remember a, a guy uh, hit a hit a bo- uh, hit a double to right center gap. And the sound off the bat just kind of, it sounded cool. And I kind of fell in love instantly. And from there, kind of just blossomed into a, into a decent career. Yeah. And at what point in your career, how, how young were you when you started to maybe realise that perhaps you had a bit of ability, that you had a bit of, a, bit of talent? Um, I think I was 16 when I had scouts kind of chatting to me and, and, and wanting me to try to, like, pursue in terms of a contract and I personally thought and my, my mum she's she's the best she was the best baseball agent you've ever had she was awesome but um she uh we we kind of sat down we thought you know I was way too young to be kind of jumping into that plus I'd only been playing the game for around four years um so I just it was around that time where I was like okay I, I kind of got a bit of um a bit of traction here and I this is something that I can actually probably do for a, for a long time and that's that's kind of when I kind of put put my foot down a little bit and started training a lot more and, and putting a lot more effort into it. And okay, as a player, you're clearly aware of Major League Baseball. Were you aware of the Australian Baseball League? Um, I wasn't aware of it until uh, it, it came out, which was in I think 2010. Um, I didn't realise we even had a, a league before that because there, there was an ABL before. Um, back back in the olden days, um, and then when ABL came back, that was when I kind of was brought into the whole the whole world of Australian baseball. And I was actually a uh, a bat boy for the Brisbane Bandits back when they were at the showgrounds uh, over in Brisbane when I when I was still I might have been yeah 16 or 15 mm. or something like that. So yeah, I didn't know too much about it, but um, it, I definitely once it came around, it was definitely something that was always around and always something that. As a young kid, I strive to kind of play in and look look up to the guys who did play in that league at, at that time. Like most kids, um, was the dream to try and play in the major leagues? Was it to try and play minor league baseball? Uh, you spent some time at university in the United States? Yeah, so my, my I think every kid's dream once they get to a point where they are playing baseball is to play in the major leagues, and that was always my dream. And when I signed with the Minnesota Twins... Um, I, you know, thought that was the uh, the first step of, of, of getting there, um, and I went over there and experienced minor league baseball, um, and I ended up getting released, and then I ended up going to university, and I still wanted to pursue that dream. I, I, I still thought that I was able to make it in the major leagues, and so I <laughs> trained and, and, and busted my ass, not only in the classroom, but off, off the field too, and um, trying to get back into professional baseball. Yeah, why? I mean, what was the difference between playing baseball in Australia, suddenly getting signed, and you get into the minor leagues only to get cut? I mean, what did they cut you for? What, what was it that you weren't doing? What, what, what didn't they see in you? <laughs> to be honest, mate, I, 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 I still to this day don't really know the answer to that. Um, I was pulled in and, and was told it was a business decision basically um but i i had i I was before i was signed i was told i was a green kid because i'd been playing baseball for five six years or less than that yeah um and you know for someone to do that and then sign a professional contract to go play in the minor leagues 
Um, and the, the, the difference between Australia and America is, 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 is insane. Everyone over there throws harder. Um, everyone, it's, it's, a, it's a completely, it's a massive step up from what baseball is in Australia to, to America. So going over there and, and trying to experience that and kind of jumping in head first, it was, it was a lot. Um, and I mean, I, I held my own for the most part. Um, but at the same time, I didn't get the longevity of what I was looking for in, in terms of a, mm. of a club kind of keeping me around. Yeah, yeah. How intense is it? How, how much pressure is there at a minor league level? I, I mean, you're almost just a science experiment for the major league club, aren't you, really? Well, yeah, basically. So it, it, you, it, it turns into, you know, you, when you're a kid, you play, you play rep ball and rep league and you, and you go to nationals and, you, and it's all fun. And don't get me wrong, it's still competitive and you still have to take pride in what you're doing. But when, when you go to the minor leagues and, and you play professional, it becomes a job. So, like, your, your, your expectations are completely different about what you're actually doing on the field. Don't get me wrong, it's still fun. Baseball will always be fun, but it's, just, it's like a different light mm. on how coaches and front office people and people who don't really – who aren't playing the game but who are overlooking things and expecting things to happen. Um, it's a completely different expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's fair to say throughout your baseball career you've experienced the highs and the lows and we've sort of touched a little bit, I guess, on a low point getting cut from a minor league baseball. What have been some of the high points? Um. Oh man, <laughs> uh, I, I went. I played in the uh, NAIA College World Series over in the states with the University of Northwestern Ohio. Um, I broke a home run record in the Canadian Summer Bowl League, uh, which was 23 for the season. Um, I had a I had, had a three home run game in a different league. Um, I think uh, my my first home run here in the ABL that was definitely a, a big one because I was fresh out of being released and I was 19 and um, or 20 or whatever it was and it, it was really cool being able to come here and play for the first time in the ABL. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. To be honest with you, like it, it's it's it sounds strange, but I don't really kind of focus on the on those type of things. I, I didn't really think about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> You're listening to SENZ. Jack Barry, member of the Auckland Tuatara baseball team, is the guest. Is my guest on the program. So you're here with the uh, Tuatara. You've got Darren Bragg as a hitting coach. Have you learnt much from Darren? Oh, every day. Um, Braggsy is the the he, he's he's just the man. Like you, you you love being around him. He always imparts a lot of knowledge, whether it's about life or hitting. Um, but yeah, um, he's he's an absolute gem to be around, and I think the the more you can kind of hang around him and pick his brain and kind of just chat to him and get to know how he did things, um, I think any anyone would, would would be a better player for it. So we're very lucky to have 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 a have a guy like him. Okay, let's talk about the current situation of the Tuatara in a little bit of a hole at the moment. I think they've. Um, one, two, lost eight out of their last ten games. Uh, the bats are not swinging. What's going on? How much of this is psychological? Oh, mate, I don't, I don't think it's anything like that at all. To be honest with you, I think we're, um, I think we're exactly where, 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 where we need to be. I don't, I don't have any, any stresses with, with what we're doing. Um, I have a feeling that we're going to still power through on, on, on the last two weeks of, of, of the season. Um, we aren't, we aren't guys who kind of let kind of get you know 
down on it. So um, personally, I, I, it, it is what it is. It's at the end of the day, it's baseball. Things happen, um, and you know, it's it has no has this. It's no one's real fault. No one's really pointing fingers at anyone. It's more or less just kind of just have to roll with the punches. So um, yeah. And that's your own personal point of view as well. That's how you're dealing with maybe, and that's how you've always dealt with perhaps any form slump that you might have experienced individually. Well, uh, I mean, yes, sure, yeah. Um, I was chatting to one of our coaches, Frank uh, Fister, who's also an absolute gem of a dude to be around as well. We're very, again, we're very lucky to have a coach like him. But he would, he, whenever you're in a slump, or or how he explains it is, you're not, you're never in a slump. You're you're always one swing away. You're always one. You're always one swing away, or one hit away from being completely out of that. Or you're you 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 find other ways to build, build build up your confidence and build up how you're feeling, even though it's not in the result that you're you're finding. For example, if I hit a a hard line drive to a fielder and get out, that doesn't mean that it's a bad at bat. Like mm. yeah, I got out like on paper, or but it doesn't mean that I played bad. Um, same, same, same kind of thing is, is what's going on here. Our, our hitters are hitting the ball and we're barreling balls and hitting it hard and our pitchers are doing their job too. It's just one of those things where it's just the result at the end of the day that we, we just haven't gotten. And then I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm very confident that we're, we're, we will figure it out in, mm. in, the, in the next two weeks. Over the weekend, really special moment for a Canberra Cavalry player, boss Moana Ra, um, playing his 300th game. I'd imagine you've played a bit of baseball with him. He's a man who has represented New Zealand. His allegiances now lie with Australia. Tell us a little bit about boss. <laughs> Again, boss, yeah, but boss is an all, yeah, he, he's awesome, man. I had, a, I had the privilege of playing with him when I was with Canberra back when I was yeah, 19, 20 years old. Um, and yeah, he's just, he's one of those dudes. He's just, you know, he's the, he's the life of the party. You, 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 you love to be around him. Um, he's always such a positive dude. Um, so yeah, it was it was awesome that we, he was able to be here in New Zealand and be able to um, celebrate his 300th game. And um, I'm pretty sure we 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 uh, gave him gave him a bit a bit of a clap and like a congratulations too, because the fact that you know it is it is a big feat, especially in the ABL. Um, so yeah. He's, he's, he's an absolute dude. Love the guy. Okay, this week we take on Geelong, Korea. Um, uh, I'll, I'll go back to it, though. Not a great series against the Sydney Blue Sox. Um, not a great series uh, against the Adelaide Giants. Not a great series about the Canberra Cavalry. You're confident we can turn things around. Um, so what's done this week? What's said by the coaches and managers? I mean, do you do anything differently, though, this week? No, I, I, from from day one, uh, Mincy, our head coach's expectation for all of us has just been has been just to do what we can do, um, do whatever we're capable of doing. Um, he, he's not expecting us to to do anything that we that we can't do. Just go out and do the little things and do do the things that we're able to um, execute. So um, that 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 was said um, today at practice. Um, so and I, I'm I'm sure a lot of guys were listening. Uh, yeah. So I, I have a have a pretty good feeling about about this weekend down in Geelong. And um, if we can, if we can get a series win, then we'll ride that off into Brisbane and fi- finish the finish the season off strong. Mm. Have you ever seen as much rain as we get in Auckland, mate? Oh, <laughs> what is the go here? Hey, every time I look outside, it's it's raining. Oh. I, I I've I've asked people like what, what it's like. Like, if, is it usually like this? And they said no. This is crazy, but. 
God, every time we that we have, we have a home game, we, we end up missing either a full series or a bunch of games mm. because it's raining. Mm. It's insane. Well, Jack Barry, all the very best this week. Um, hopefully Tuatara can turn things around against uh, Geelong and then build on that momentum, take on the Brisbane Bandits' last home series, end up making the playoffs and go on and win the Claxton Shield. That's pretty much what you're telling me is going to happen, isn't it? Hundred percent. There, there, there isn't. There is. There isn't a. Uh, ho- hopefully, we, we are going to. Okay. So we are, we're 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 going to have a good good series this weekend against Geelong, and then we're going to take that into Brisbane, and then we're going to take that into the finals. Because hundred percent. We want to retire your jersey at North Harbour Stadium. You want, we want you to become our favourite ever Australian. We want you back here next year. We want all of those things. We want all of those things, Jack. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Just we'll just just watch watch out watch out for this weekend. Um, yeah. Right, well, Jack Barry, we'll let you go, but thank you for joining us on the program tonight. Greatly appreciated. Too easy, mate. Have a good one. Thank you, Jack Barry there. The big slugger, the big hitter, Kangaroo Jack, they call him, Tuatara. 22 minutes after eight, our theme is songs with names in them. It's been a good theme, too, that Ben Francis has put together, something that he's been um, trying to bring to the show. Last night it was songs with the harmonica in it. We um, just had a text earlier come from Chris, Chris out of Foxton, saying, Jonah, great guy, in my opinion, but not a legend. He never scored a try in South Africa. Yeah, but I'm not sure that doesn't mean that he's not a legend of the game. He did it on the biggest stage, and you wonder how many defenders he drew every time he played South Africa, which opened the door for other players to score tries. Um, Sometimes it's those intangible things, isn't it? Anyway, um, we spoke a little bit earlier tonight with former Black Cap Andrew Ellis talking about that defeat in the first one international between New Zealand and Pakistan, beaten up pretty badly in New Zealand, and just trying to work out how we can maybe add just a little bit of um, meaning to one-day cricket now. Do we need to have like a Ranfurly Shield introduced at an international level? Do we need to have world ranking points based on series victories? Because a lot of these games just appear to be exhibition with no real meaning to them. And I'm not sure that it's a good thing for cricket. Anyway, off the back of that loss, the media caught up with New Zealand's opening batsman, vice-captain. It's not Kane Williamson. It's in fact Tom Latham. That's where I've been betting, um, you know, for the side for... For a few years now, so um, you know that's my role in the team, and certainly enjoy uh, you know that position. But whatever, wherever it may be, um, it's important about you adapting to to situations in the middle order you can be in at 30 for three or, or 200 for three. So um, yeah, for me, it's just about trying to adapt to each situation as best as possible. Uh, tell us something about Usama Mir. He was making his ODI debut today, so um, tell us something about him. Yeah, he um, bowled really well. Um, obviously, a, a tall leg spinner that um, you know that bowls at, at a decent pace and, and managed to get a little bit of a turn out of the surface. So, um, yeah, I think for him, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll be really happy with how he went on his debut. So, uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing him a bit more this series. Uh, down here on the left, and then back over here. Hi, hello. Uh, okay, uh, it was expecting that uh, it would be a fighting match, uh, but unfortunately, uh, you you play players who are in the failure mode. I have no idea. So, do you, what do you think that in what areas uh, uh, the reason that you got the failure in the match? 
Uh, I think if we, we look with the bat, uh, we probably quite didn't have enough runs. I think, um, you know, when we threatened for a big partnership, we, we managed to lose wickets at crucial times, so we weren't able to, uh, you know, extend that death phase towards, uh, you know, the back end with the bats. So if we were able to get close to that 300 mark, then uh, then maybe things would have been different. So I thought the, the fight that we showed with the ball was, was really good to... Um, you know, to keep pushing that run rate up, but um, you know, credit to the way um, Rizwan, Baba, and, and Harris came out and played. I thought they played exceptionally well in that situation. So, uh, I guess for us, it's about taking those learnings from today, and, and hopefully, we can, uh, you know, put that into practice in, in a couple of days' time. Uh, Tom, your record in Asia is very much superb. Uh, you played extremely well in India. Now you played in Pakistan. So. Just uh, talk us through your experience playing in Asia and also uh, talk us through the pitch behaviour of today. Uh, what do you think about the today's cricket and also it was a little bit changed than test match? Yeah, I think for me, it's, as, as I said earlier, it's just about trying to adapt to conditions as best as possible and and find a game plan that works in, in these conditions. And, um, you know, obviously you, you face a lot of spin uh, over in these conditions, so it's finding ways that, that work for you and... Uh, you know, trying to apply that as best as possible, and and I think we saw that in today's surface where, with with there was a little bit of turn, uh, you know, especially um, today during during our first innings, and and even you know when we bowled tonight, there was uh, there was certainly a lot of probably a little bit more turn, um, but probably skidded on a little bit for um, for the seamers a little bit more. So we also saw a little bit of reverse swing in the first innings. So um, yeah, for us, depending on whether you bat or bowl first, it's trying to make the most of, of those conditions and, and try players a, accordingly. Over here, then over here. Uh, Tom, uh, New Zealand were 22-30 runs uh, short uh, on this track? Yeah, I think we were probably a little bit short. I think, um, you know, as I said earlier, we, I think our biggest partnership was 60, or just over 60, and uh, if you want to post a score of, of you know, around 300, then uh, you need those big partnerships. And for us, we just didn't quite do things for, for long enough tonight with the bat. And as I said, if we had 30, 40, 50 more, then, uh, you know, things might have been slightly different and uh, they might have had to attack a little bit more and that might have um, brought a few chances and to take a few more wickets. But, um, you know, for us, it's trying to learn from, from game to game and hopefully we can take those experiences from tonight and take that into uh, the next game on Wednesday. Yeah, there you go. So we'll have live ball by ball coverage of that game tomorrow night for you here on SENZ. Fingers crossed. Hopefully they can break that five or last five games they've lost. Hopefully they can break that losing streak and put a good number on the board. You're listening to SENZ. It is 27 and a half minutes after eight. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk the Australian Basketball League with Cameron Luke. Is that the most famous song with somebody's name in it? Billy Jean. That's been the theme of our music tonight here on SENZ. Sweet Caroline's up there. But if you look at Michael Jackson, you look at Thriller, you look at his global popularity, is there a song that has sold more singles than that song that features somebody's name in it? You might have a thought on that. You can text us here on double eight double three. 27 minutes away from 9 o'clock, we're going to talk the National Basketball League and we're talking the Australian Basketball League, of course. Joining us now on the programme is Cam Luke. Cam hosts a show in Australia called the NBL Overtime. He joins us. Cam, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, welcome. I'm not sure what time it is over there. Mind you, I'm still in <laughs> holiday mode, my good man. I've got, I'm not quite sure if I was at Lords, I wouldn't be seeing the new ball too well at the moment. I'd be swinging and missing outside off stump. 
Most most people are still in holiday mood, mode, even if they are back in the office. It's uh, 5.30 uh, where I am. I'm on the Gold Coast, in fact, for Magic Millions. I'm in horse racing mode a little bit of this week with SEN Track, so I'm, uh, I'm there. But uh, 6.30 traditionally where I'd be based in Melbourne. But uh, I tell you what, it doesn't matter what the time, wherever you might be, just be ready because we're about, oh, about three hours away from the breakers and the wildcats to go at it. That's going to be a ripping contest. This New Zealand team continue to play really well. And Perth, just starting to get to not major panic stations, but a little minor tremble because uh, missing the finals two years in a row would be disastrous. So they need to bank some of these wins when the opportunities arise. Yeah, and of course, there's a game earlier that tonight, and that is the Illawarra Hawks taking on the Tasmania Jack Jumpers. Tasmania looking really good in this league for such a long period, but have what fallen into a little bit of a form slump? What's happening with the Jack Jumpers? Oh, look, the JJs, again, the roster they put together was solid without being exceptional, but they proved so many people, including myself, wrong last year. And they just, I don't trust them. I don't trust them. They, they don't stay bad for long, but they don't stay good for long. They are absolutely a 50% team when it comes to the NBL. And the only reason, and understandably so, that people are starting to warm to them still is the fact that they did last year where they got hot late, and then obviously bounced out Melbourne United and made a grand final series where they got belted by the Sydney Kings. And they beat a Melbourne United team that didn't have Chris Golding in game three. Now, you've got to be able to beat who you... You can only play who you beat and all the rest of it. And, and the fact is that um, they had their opportunities this year to impress me, and they haven't done it yet. They'll beat Illawarra. Like, Illawarra are just rough. Uh, they've just lost Fraser. They, again, broken arm. They lost uh, Peyton Seaver around for the year as well. Um, they just can't take a trick at all. But they'll they'll beat they'll beat Illawarra. But I just I can't I can't fall into Tasmania. I don't have them in the top four teams. They'll make the playoffs probably, but I don't have them in the top four or five teams in the league. Sydney very much the perennial front runners at the moment, and deservedly so. Genuinely, what chance do you give the Breakers if they can, at the back end of the season here, the regular season, find the form that they had at the start of the season? They are very good on the road. They've won seven from nine. I think they're they're one of only three teams who can win it. I think the Sydney Kings are the best team in the in in the league this year. But I, I think New Zealand and Cairns are right there on the same tier. I, I think they're above the tiers. Adelaide, of course, a huge win on the weekend in Adelaide. To speak about that road record to go on the road and take a game or two against these teams around the the similar ilk is huge. And if you look at uh, Southeast Melbourne Phoenix, they're, they're struggling with with injuries. I spoke of Tasmania, Perth are going to try and uh, out offense, the rest of the teams with uh, Ty Webster being added to that. They can't guard anyone. They can't rebound. And Melbourne United are probably the fourth best team in it right now, form-wise. But because of their inability to be able to put, you know, their best roster on the on the floor early, they're they're in a pretty decent-sized hole. I think I think Sydney will be in the grand final. I think it comes down to New Zealand and Cairns as the next step of it. It's a little different this year with the with the play-in game, so. Um, second is a hell of a lot better to finish than third, mainly because you don't get stuck in elimination games. Now, in saying that, you still have two bites of the cherry at home if you finish third to be able to make the semi-final. So it's not the end of the world, but you want to try and get first two, top two. And I, I think New Zealand, I think New Zealand and Cairns are the only challenges right now to Sydney. And it would take a, a decent form reversal, I think, for one of those other teams to be able to force their way into into, in my mind, anyway, calculations to win the championship. How important is it coming into the final games of the regular season to be winning? 
concise a form, concise. Uh, look, yeah, I mean, it's all about momentum, isn't it? Can sides afford to give their wider squad game time rest marquee players knowing that they are in the playoffs, knowing that they have cemented a certain spot? No, uh, it depends. It depends. If you're going to finish second and, you, and you've cemented second or you've cemented first, you can probably get away with it. Keeping in mind, though, you're going to have a little time off with the playing or wild card games happening in that first week of the finals. But I, like you need to, I, I think it's almost impossible to finish fifth or sixth and win the championship. To finish sixth, you would then have to go on the road to beat fifth, go on the road to beat third or fourth, then go on the road against the first team, which will be Sydney, somehow beat them in a series, and then go on the road to win a five-game series against either second or third. I think sixth or fifth, you can almost count out winning a championship. And with the new way that the rules are, fourth, you can definitely do it because you can go on the road um, and, and beat third. Then you are seeded third going into the semi-final, So you get that second-place team. But with the wildcard games and the way the NBL is, every game matters into the second half of the year. I like the introduction of it. I just don't think there's any doubt, you, any way you can rest certain guys. Momentum's key. And if you want to have a crack at this thing, if you finish fourth, fifth or sixth, you need to get momentum from the outset because they're elimination games pretty much. So um, if you finish first or second, you're sort of tucked away nicely, which doesn't look like it'll happen for second. I think Sydney might wrap up that minor championship. Maybe they can rest a guy or two and it won't make a huge amount of difference. But I think for everyone else, you're going to be playing your best come that, uh, that late regular season mm. games. I do a little bit of work in the Australian Baseball League here. Um, just a 40-game regular season. If you play in the minor leagues in baseball, it's 140 regular mm-hmm. games in a season, 160 if you play in the major leagues. One of the interesting comments that one of the Americans made is that every game feels like it's a playoff game. Again, the length of this National Basketball League, it's not nearly as long as you see in the NBA. So... Can you? Is it a similar? Is it a similar sort of scenario that there's not too many periods in the season where you can, you know, fall into a slump or sort of go through the motions? Not, not at all. Obviously, with the the changing of the seasons a little bit more now, where um, they do play a little bit more. You know, back in the in the nineties and in the early two thousands, they'd play once, maybe twice a week if they were lucky. They they. They, they consider themselves professional training athletes. Nowadays, they're professional players. These players want to play more. They want to play. That 28-game season works nicely, though, because we do get a lot. As entertainment, it's not, you know, we, we get two games, sometimes three games a weekend for a team or at least in a, in a seven-day block. It's not oversaturated. We've got to find, and I think they have found the right balance of saying to these players, hey, you're professional athletes and you want to play, but, you know, it's unrealistic to have you know three home games a week in some of these markets and expect people still to go on a regular basis this is in the nba with the with the major population the major league baseball where you do see and you would know more than i but you know i've, I've been to major league baseball games at two in the afternoon there's five thousand people in the joint because they're playing a three a three-day homestand or a three-day series against the same team so um we're gonna we, I, I think it's done perfectly and with the wild card games it does mean that games matter Really, the only games that really have no interest from now on to the end of the year would be Illawarra playing Brisbane. And I couldn't tell you if that actual game happens because uh, whilst there might be some red-hot favourites, the very fact is that all these teams have to keep winning. You don't want to drop one 
to one of those teams at the bottom of the ladder. I'm talking Illawarra or Brisbane. So um, it's I think it's an almost perfect, almost a perfect fixture, and the NBL have got it really, really well. Right. I want to touch on the Sydney Kings. You run through their roster, the likes of Cooks, Walton, um, Glover, Noy, Galloway, etc. Is it just about the roster here, or is the stadium in which they play the home court advantage? Is it an absolute cauldron? Is it a tough place to win? It is. There's there's a couple of layers to it. They were brilliant last year, but something that that you really probably been underrated a little bit. They lost they lost Jalen Adams, who was the MVP. They they lost Ian Clark, who is now at Adelaide and was the closer in that grand final series. And they lost the big man, Jarrell Martin. All guys had great seasons or great, at least parts of seasons when I talk of Ian Clark. So to replace three Americans is hard to do. But what the Kings have done as a franchise, and uh, you know Chris Pongrass, who is the CEO, is a guy with NBA experience. He's been in the NBA front offices. You've got Andrew Bogut, Paul Smith, who, of course, who is, who is the, uh, the majority owner. They, they have built it like an NBA franchise. So it makes it easier, one, to attract those fans where you touch on 11,000 people are rolling through the, the doors of Kudos Bank Arena. It is probably uh, the only arena in the country that feels like an NBA stadium. Now, that's mainly because it was built for the Olympic Games, you know, 20-odd years ago. But it also means that the development is there. Xavier Cooks wants to play there. And he does sign there, and he's the best player in the competition. Dejan Vasilovic had opportunities to go elsewhere, goes and ends up there, and the confidence and the depth grows. You mentioned Glover. You mentioned, obviously, Sean Bruce has been able to do it. Quite noise being able to continue to play really well. Galloway's come off the bench at certain times and, and, and added a fair bit of spark. So when you've got a structure from the top to the bottom that breeds confidence, the very fact is that going forward, the players who are 8th, ninth, and 10th, they believe in themselves. So when they get those opportunities to play minutes, they don't second-guess themselves. They're backed by organisation and a coach in Chase Buford who says, hey, you know what, we know how good you are. And they go in and perform. Not easy to do, but I think the culture of the Sydney Kings right now is, is perfect. You mentioned the changes from this year's Kings team to last year's and having to replace uh, three Americans. Have you seen a change in style based on the change in players, based on the change of the plumbing of those individuals? No, they, they were able to go and get guys who are, who are very similar. So uh, Derek Walton Jr., I think he's the most, almost the most impressive new import this year in the league. I like Barry Brown Jr. over in your part of the world. He's been outstanding. But uh, Walton is one of those rare Americans who have come in and just has a really unselfish non-egotistical way of basketball. So he'll put up games where he has, you know, three, five points, a couple of shots. He distributes and he gets it to Cooks. He gives it to Suarez or he finds Vasilovic, whoever's got the odd hand. Or he can just stand up and just flood out score, which we did see in that double overtime loss to South East Melbourne Phoenix about a month ago when he had 45. So we're looking at a situation where he just comes straight in and fitted that perfect situation where Chase Buford is like, I see how we play basketball. All right, we lost three imports. How do we replace mm. them? You go, there's one of them. Oh, hey, you know who we need? We need an absolute mm. lockdown defender. Justin Simon comes back in, of course, not a stranger to the league, and then over to go get Suarez, who's a great leader in the locker room, replaces Jarrell Marston a little bit, but knowing full well that Xavier Cooks is going to take that next level as well. So the style hasn't changed. 
the way that Chase Buford plays or, or coaches his basketball hasn't changed and they've been able to get guys who've been able to come in and fit roles around the Australian guys who have taken that next step. And Cooks is now the best player in the league and Vasilovic has gone to another level as well. Well, we look forward to the countdown for the Illawarra Hawks taking on Tasmania and then it is the Wildcats taking on the Breakers. Good luck to the Breakers. Uh, look, really appreciate it, Cameron. Thank you for joining us on the program. Love it. Fantastic. Absolutely. Anytime. Love uh, having you guys and SENZ on fire. So we uh, continue to build the game wherever it is in both countries and the Breakers are having a hell of a season. So it's good to see them get a little bit of luck after the last couple of years and everything that's gone down. So... Uh, have a great rest of the night, mate, and we'll uh, watch the Wildcats and the Breakers in particular tonight. Fantastic. You enjoy the Gold Coast. Cameron Luke there uh, joining us talking all things the Australian Basketball League, or they simply call it the National Basketball League. We've got our own National Basketball League here, haven't we? Right, it is coming up to 14 minutes away from 9 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. We'll bring you live coverage of the Big Bash after 9 o'clock out of Australia. Now we're um, getting to that time of the show. We're coming towards the end. Yesterday we had songs with the music theme that had the harmonica in it and we had a little bit of a a, a battle off between Piano Man and the Neil Young what was sorry um what's the song been Neil Young yesterday sorry Heart of Gold Heart of Gold right my apologies just having a mental block and we decided not based on which artist we like or what particular song but we actually felt that the Piano Man um harmonica just had a greater presence and probably made the song. Tonight, we've been going with songs with names in it. Now, we've got Victoria, which I think is most the most iconic New Zealand song. Globally, though, we've sort of brought it back down to Billie Jean from Michael Jackson and probably Sweet Caroline from Neil Diamond. So should we just have a little taste of both, Ben, and then maybe determine which one we think? And then people can text in and let us know on double eight double three. Touching me, touching you, sweet Caroline. Good times never seem so good. I've been Fascinating, Ben. Fascinating. There probably are others out there. As we said, Delilah, um, Hey Jude. But I think in terms of just capturing an audience, I mean, the Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson. It's where he wore the white glove for the song. It's where he did the moonwalk. It was iconic. But I think if you're at a sports game, this comes on. It doesn't resonate as much as say Sweet Caroline does it yeah but then you could also say does Sweet Caroline have that same legacy if it's not for sport yeah yeah you're right I mean 
and yeah, and a you listen to. Well, I don't know. It's, it's a really, really hard one. I mean, I think if you looked at global sales and if you looked at Jackson, you'd probably have to say Billy Jean is arguably, you know, it's right up there, isn't it? It's Thriller. It's it's Jackson's top three songs of all time. Michael Jackson sits alongside of Elvis Presley as an absolute legend. And we've been talking about legend tonight. You don't want to throw that word around too loosely, but he sits up there, doesn't he? Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, um, the Beatles, um, you know, absolutely iconic. So which way are we going here, Ben? I think you have to go Billie Jean. Yeah, I think Billie Jean is the most famous song in the world using a name. And I think probably if you're so realistic, you'd probably also have to look at Hey Jude. Yep, I'd agree. With the Beatles because it goes back you know, what are we talking, 60-odd years, aren't we? Um, and it's one of the Beatles' most famous songs, and they're arguably the greatest band of all time. I mean, always subjective. So, yeah, that's how it goes. Um, now, I'm not on tomorrow night, but I, 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 I'm assuming you're going to go down a similar path. Who, who have you got on tomorrow night, Dean? Dean Butler, correct. Okay, I'll be interested to see what you do with Dino tomorrow night. I might use the category I was planning on using tonight. I kind of felt like, I kind of feel like the category is more suited to Dean. Which what is was like, it? I, I'm not going to reveal because, okay. well, no, Dean's probably not listening. We're going to go. We're going to go one hit wonders. Oh, one hit wonders! Wow, there's a lot of them. It'd have to be. Um, I would walk five hundred oh. miles. And well, I, well, I guess, walk I guess that's the thing. I guess that's the thing. To be the man. I guess that's the thing that makes it very subjective. What's the, what's the other one? Um, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. To, yeah. But the thing is, if you if you're in like Scotland, for example, the Proclaimers' most famous song is "Sunshine on Leith." Of course, that's so more than a one-hit wonder, aren't they? Yeah, but uh, that this is where the subject comes into because people would say OMC are uh, a, a one-hit wonder, but in New Zealand they had more. They had about three or four top ten. It's a good one. I'd be interested to see what Dino says. Yeah, he put a comedic spin on. Very funny man, Dean Butler, stand-up comedian back in his day. Writes a lot of comedy for a number of television shows. You'll have his dulcet tones. You'll hear me back on between ten and two tomorrow. Looking forward to having your company. Special thanks to Ben Francis. We've got Big Bash Cricket out of Australia for you next if you are travelling around the country. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Do take care.